Mom or Dad? The Asexual Parent Answers the Call. In The Psychology of the Transference, Jung articulated a shamanic perspective where he describes therapist and patient as sharing a single soul between them that has the quality of a deceptive guide that embodies the Native American archetype of Coyote the Trickster. Jung called this guide that shares virtually identical qualities with Mother Ayahuasca in Amazonian cultures Mercurius, a Hermes-like spirit that has the unitary perspective of the Holy Ghost of Christianity and the destructive and fragmentary quality of the Serpent of Chaos. For purposes of this discussion, Mother Ayahuasca and Mercurius can be considered one and the same spirit or intelligence, and the processes they engender are virtually identical. In either case, the old, habitual, no longer functional worldview of the patient and the healer is broken up and destroyed by these instinctual forces of unintegrated archetypes. This demolition, or ego death and rebirth, as painful and frightening as it always is, works in the service of a new integration under the guiding spirit of this god or goddess of transformation. This is the shamanic equivalent of the death and dismemberment hero's journey to the underworld popularized in mythology worldwide. In these sessions, Jung discusses holding himself open, vulnerable, and unprotected by his professional persona, unconcerned by the possibility that his shadow may enter the interaction with his patient, apparently believing that if the analysis and feels cruelly treated, this is what the guiding spirit he referred to as the great man required. The great man was neither Jung himself nor the patient, but a third direction-giving presence, an autonomous spirit that guided the process. Sometimes the great man was conceived as an unconscious factor within Jung himself that he listened to. At other times, the great man was understood to be the patient's soul or potential wholeness he was addressing, but more often than not, the great man was experienced as a third partner who is neither in Jung's head nor in the head of the patient, but in the space between them both. This space was described as the background against which they met and in dialogue with which they came to understand themselves in a new, more adequate manner where the world of habitual, everyday consciousness dissolves into whizzing molecules and the patient no longer knows who they are. Instead, they have a sense that neither they nor Jung was directing the interaction. Rather, someone spoke through them, and someone, not Jung, spoke through him. Sometimes this altered state of consciousness was described as a self-to-self -self encounter, and sometimes as directed by a third who was taken to be a two-million-year-old man. It was an overwhelming experience which could result in elation, inflation, or a cruel belittlement which could be characterized as tough love. The patient often felt that their mind was being read and felt transparent, a subjective condition sometimes experienced as gratifying and sometimes as a dangerous descent into a perilous underworld. The shamanic elements in Jung's analysis are unmistakable. He sets off on a monologue, not knowing where he's going, but following the guidance of the so-called great man, who seems to have all the characteristics of a spirit guide. In Jung's words, 
This being is not a conviction, not an assumption. It is a presence and a fact. It happens. Furthermore, the great man knows both the therapist and the patient better than they know themselves against the background of a greater timeless cosmos, which is why he is described as being two million years old. Jung, in fact, defined analysis in the last decade of his life as an extended dialogue with the great man in which both therapist and patient come to know themselves within the context of the great man's wisdom. This larger perspective is what the patient needed to discover the wholeness of their soul. Jung discovered that his own identity was rearranged and enlarged, suggesting an important reason why so many of the shamans described in Eliade's classic shamanism, archaic techniques of ecstasy, need to shamanize. When they fail to practice their calling regularly, they fall sick because they lose their meaning-giving connection with that greater context, the cosmos through which they journey, and the wisdom of their spirit guides. An analysis guided by the great man, however, draws the patient into a trialogue with three parties actively contributing to the work, healer, patient, and great man. Jung's disciple from California, Jane Wheelwright, described the breakdown of the world where the domain of space and time flew apart into whizzing molecules and melting shapes. The realm of our public consensus, what the modern West takes to be the only world there is, the reality we measure in feet, seconds, and degrees, all blurs and becomes indistinct the moment the great man's voice is heard. In trialogue with the great man, as in ayahuasca sessions, healer and patient are drawn into an altered state of consciousness where the oneness of all things becomes more vivid than their separate identities, and they find themselves in a perilous underworld of unfamiliar landscapes where the needle of their everyday compass spins uselessly. Certainty resides only in the great man or mother who guides their interaction according to a cosmic wisdom they dimly intuit but cannot grasp. When Jung said he listened within to speak whatever popped into his mind, he shifted his attention away from the sensory world to what he called the background where patient and analyst are carried along by a current of fascination and new topics flood harmoniously into the space between them. Lovers know this experience very well, as they too are in touch with the background. What Jung called the background, also known as the greater cosmos, is with us all the time, but we screen it out in ordinary states of consciousness, and we are frightened off it for good reasons. Imagine trying to negotiate our superhighways and crowded urban streets while open to such a strange underworld. The problem is that most of us screen it out too thoroughly, losing contact with the greater and deeper meaning of our existence. Even those of us relatively free of neurotic conflicts lose a good deal of our natural human spirituality, and those who have lost their souls have screened out so much that their lives become a disempowered misery. We've all lost our greater selves to some extent and screened out too much, losing a minimal sense of self that has been banished to the background dwelling in a place very much like the underworld of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. In an analysis conducted by the great man, the errant soul is not rounded up and led back. 
Rather, the patient travels into the greater cosmos along with their healer and becomes their soul, dropping their everyday obsession with impotence and survival to become united with their greater identity by making an imaginal journey guided by the great man or mother into the background of their narrowly constructed life, vividly living in those minutes with the unforgettable power of their whole being until their soul has been restored. Because shamanism takes the real as being outside the individual, it assumes that the soul has gotten lost, strayed into a foreign realm, and can only be retrieved by a specialist who has learned something of the topography of the greater cosmos and acquired a spirit guide to direct their search for a soul that has wandered far from its host. Meanwhile, psychotherapy, because it takes the real as being inside the individual, assumes that the soul itself is not really lost and has not strayed, but rather is present but unrecognized. The patient has become unconscious of their soul's presence, but the soul doesn't have to be chased and led. The doors of perception have to be opened so the subject can consciously connect with a created soul or subpersonality that has been there all along. Neither the shaman nor the therapist is capable of effecting the cure in ordinary consciousness. Both have to enter an altered state of awareness and open themselves to the guidance of a third, a spiritual presence far wiser than they are. This third agent in the healing, whether it's called the great man, my spirit guide, or mother ayahuasca, has complete understanding of the human participants as well as the work they need to do. Both the shaman and the therapist find the soul through an imaginal journey under the guidance of that third. Whether the healer travels through a cosmic dreamscape or relays stories concocted by the guide, the shaman's journey itself can be seen as a concoction of the guide. The importance piece appears to be finding the soul, which means acquiring a living experience of having a soul and being a soul. A psychologist would want to know the mechanics of how the cure was effected and the inner dynamics that brought about these changes. An analysis conducted by the great man answers that the cure is effected by redirecting the patient's attention away from the narrow world of victimhood to the archetypal world where questions of ultimate meaning arise. What is the meaning of death? What does it mean to live a life in which death is a certainty? The patient's attention is seduced away from the obsessions of their complex, and they begin to look at the cosmic picture. What they see there is so compelling that the tyranny of the complex is undermined, and the cosmic realm of the background, where their soul or subpersonality has been living unconsciously, emerges to the forefront of their attention and generates a powerful fascination for their whole being and the bars of their psychological prison have been sprung. It seems self-evident that if a shaman is able to find and retrieve a soul, they must be in some kind of contact with that soul, and in its own way, the soul must feel this connection as strongly as the shaman. If shamans are in general agreement that they do not affect the cure strictly by their own power, but rather through their spirit guides and power animals, something like a trialogue must be involved. In this regard, shamanism and an analysis conducted by the great man have a great deal in common and we're left with only one major difference between them, 
namely the explicitness of the trialogue structure. In an analysis directed by the great man, the trialogue occupies the foreground of consciousness for both analyst and patient, but in shamanism, the trialogue structure lingers in the background. How do we account for this? The most probable answer resides in the differences in the altered states of consciousness that come in an analytic cure as opposed to a shamanic one, which are respectively reverie and trance. For the definitions of these states, Dan Merker's book, Becoming Half-Hidden, Shamanism and Initiation Among the Inuit, tells us that trance is characterized by a state of involuntary belief. While in the trance state, we are incapable of doubting the truth and reality of the visions we encounter, believing without choosing to believe. Doubts may occur to us after we return to an ordinary state of consciousness and recall the events of our trance, but during the trance itself, we can no more doubt the reality we experience in that state. Nagging doubts about the reality of the imaginal world we encounter in reverie can be suppressed, but they cannot be abolished, making reverie an altered state where we voluntarily choose to accept our visions as if they were as common as everyday waking events. Human consciousness is a fragile and limited thing, and the fact that we all, to a greater or lesser extent, lose our soul in everyday life dramatically illustrates this fragility. Shamans emphasize again and again the role of trust and intent in their work, and when it comes to the work of finding and restoring souls, we have to work within our human limitations and can only be conscious of so much in any given moment. Shamanism and psychotherapy have much to learn from one another, and the place to begin is with the experience of taking direction from spirit or essence, whether it is characterized as a great man or a great mother, as opposed to being subject to the whims of our competing sub-personalities. <laughs>